hey, and welcome. This is the Ben Shapiro Show. A lot coming up for you this hour, a little bit later on in the hour. We're having on Sagar and Jetty. He's the White House correspondent for The Daily Caller. He also happens to be an American Muslim who is writing extensively about what just happened in New Zealand, this horrific anti-Muslim terrorist attack by a white supremacist on two churches in Christchurch, New Zealand. We'll be having him on later to discuss this, the media coverage of this massacre, what exactly we can expect next in terms of policy and all the rest. But we begin this hour with a story that is going relatively unnoticed because of all the other events of the day. And that is this giant climate strike. So apparently it was a good idea for all the kids to leave school today and not go to school because they were striking about the climate or something. They were going to yell at the sun. According to CBS News, from the South Pacific to the edge of the Arctic Circle, students mobilized by social media and word of mouth skipped class Friday to protest what they believed are their government's failures to take tough action against global warming. The rallies were one of the biggest international actions yet, involving hundreds of thousands of students in more than 100 countries around the globe. Now, a large number of these younger students are, of course, being brought there by parents or by teachers. The coordinated school strikes were inspired by 16-year-old activist in Sweden, Greta Thunberg, who began holding solitary demonstrations outside the Swedish parliament last year. Since then, the weekly protests have snowballed from a handful handful of cities to hundreds, fueled by dramatic headlines about the impact of climate change during the student's lifetime. Thunberg was recently nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize for literally standing outside a building with a sign. Ah, how things... I mean, honestly, it's an upgrade from past Nobel Peace Prizes. Barack Obama won a Nobel Peace Prize for being a human. We also had Yasser Arafat win a Nobel Peace Prize for being a terrorist, so I guess this is an upgrade. She says that as protesters cheered her name at a rally in Stockholm, that the world faces an existential crisis, the biggest crisis humanity has ever faced, and still it has been ignored for decades by those that have known about it, and you know who you are. You have ignored this and are most guilty of this. Well, this is not the biggest crisis humanity has ever faced. In fact, this is probably not in the top 10 crises that humanity has ever faced. And I mean of the last couple of hundred years alone. I mean, there was World War I, Then there was World War II. There was the flu epidemic of the early 20th century. There have been some pretty big crises, it turns out, in the history of humanity. A three degree Celsius temperature change over the course of the next century does not seem to me an existential crisis. How many people are going to die directly because of the temperature change? You're going to have to give me some numbers that make sense. And don't give me that people are going to migrate. Guess what has always happened throughout human history? People migrating. How do you think human beings got to America? How do you think they got to South America? How do you think human beings got to every random spot in the globe? It was called migration, folks. Nonetheless, even if you take seriously the threat of damage of climate change, you also have to balance that against the threat of action that actually destroys the economy and harms billions of people who are living around the world in the here and now. But this sort of catastrophic thinking, this pushing of the crisis mentality, it does carry some risks. It does carry some dangers. And the fact is that there are people who are, who are driven by a, a crisis mentality to do evil things. This is true on virtually every side of the political aisle. If you look, for example, at this horrible, evil massacre in New Zealand, the person who perpetrated it was trying to cite, he's a white supremacist, he was trying to suggest there was a white genocide, that white people were on the verge of becoming non-majorities in Western countries, and that this was some sort of horrific crisis that had to be stopped. First of all, it's not a horrific crisis. Second of all, it doesn't have to be stopped. Why would you care about the color of somebody's skin as opposed to the beliefs in their head or the actions that they take in their life? But obviously, the crisis mentality is one of the things that drove this guy to do something evil. 
Now, crisis mentality can be deployed effectively when there's an actual crisis. But when you overestimate the crisis, what you're instead doing is driving people mad. And that seems to be what is happening with regard to many issues. One of those issues is indeed the issues of the environment. And this is particularly true when you look at politicians who suggest that people who disagree with them on climate policy are so-called climate deniers. You know, people who are literally standing there doing nothing while children will, will die because of them. Across the globe, protests big and small urged politicians to act against climate change while also highlighting local environmental problems. Speakers at the U.S. Capitol in Washington stood behind a banner that said, we don't want to die. Again, we don't, well, I mean, I'm sorry to, to break it to you. We all will. Also, are you going to die like today because it's warm outside or cold outside? Like, well, what is this we don't want to die routine? Are, is your life really at risk? Because, of, again, a three, this is the upper estimate from the international, inter, international Panel on Climate Change. The upper end estimate is a three degree Celsius climate change by the end of the century. Are we all going to die from that? In New York City, students chanted, save our planet and climate change has got to go near an entrance to Central Park because if there's one group of politicians who are definitely standing against the left, it is the New York government. In San Francisco, hundreds of students disrupted downtown traffic as they marched from House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's office to Senator Dianne Feinstein's office, which is probably great because that means that there are more cars idling in traffic and blowing emissions into the air, so that's smart. In Berlin, police said as many as 20,000 protesters, most of them young students, gathered in a downtown square, waving signs with slogans such as March now or swim later. Again, people are not going to be swimming. People are going to migrate over the course of time as they have for every climate change in the history of humanity. And also they were carrying signs that said climate protection report card F before marching through the Capitol's government quarter with a stop in front of Chancellor Angela Merkel's office. In Poland, thousands marched in rainy Warsaw and other cities to demand a ban on the burning of coal, which is a major source of carbon dioxide. Some wore face masks as they carried banners that read, today's air smells like the planet's last days. Okay, again, this is if, if you're walking around with a sign saying, apocalypse tomorrow, we used to make fun of those people. They were the crazies who carried the sandwich board on their chest in all the New Yorker cartoons. Now, we praise them and offer them the Nobel Prize. In India's capital of New Delhi, school children protested inaction on climate change and rising air pollution levels that often far exceeded World Health Organization limits. That's all well and good, but it is worthwhile to note that without carbon-based fuels, even more people will be living in poverty in India. In Paris, people were enthusiastic teachers, teenagers were thronging the cobblestone streets, according to CBS News, carrying signs that said, now or never. Well, then I guess it's never because it's not happening like right now. Police in Vienna said 10,000 students rallied in the capital. In Helsinki, 3,000 students stood in front of Finland's parliament, sporting placards such as, dinosaurs thought they had time too. Well, dinosaurs didn't think much of anything. They were real stupid. Thousands marched through Madrid and more than 50 other Spanish cities. Spain is vulnerable to rising sea levels and rapid desertification. This sort of, of boosting, cheering on of apocalyptic thinking about something that is going to be a gradual change over the course of the century is not good for the mental health of humans. It is bad for the mental health of humans. It's so funny, the same media that will declare that it is not a national emergency or crisis, that massive caravans of people are moving from South and Latin America up to the United States border in the here and now are suggesting that we should be talking as though the world is going to end in the next 50 years if we don't start doing something like driving less. 
As I've said before, if they really feel this drastically about climate change, then we need to, we have only one choice. If this is our World War II, we have to start bombing the coal plants in China and India. That's the only way to make this happen. China and India are the leading producers of carbon emissions. But Beto O'Rourke was one of the folks who was pushing this nonsense. He goes out there, he says, the Green New Deal is just like Normandy. The Green New Deal, just like Normandy, right? Just like the people storming Normandy to fight the Nazis, who it turns out were evil in the here and now and murdering civilians and destroying the continent of Europe and creating a fascist regime. Fighting climate change is just like that. And the people who are fighting climate change, they're just like the brave 18-year-olds running onto beaches where they knew they were running direct into cannon fire. Yeah, exactly the same, Beto. If you think of our leadership, those who preceded us, right? Those who were on the beaches in Normandy, those who faced an existential threat to Western democracy and our way of life, they showed us the way. We, we can all come together, we can unite, we can marshal the resources, and we can convene the countries of the world around otherwise unsolvable problems. That, that's who we are. That's why they call us the indispensable nation. Okay, well, uh, and they're not calling us the indispensable nation because we are talking about cutting our carbon emissions. We have, by the way, been cutting our carbon emissions over the past few years. We are the number one carbon-emitting country that cut carbon emissions over the last 24 months or so, over the last five years, I believe, total. Nonetheless, this sort of catastrophic thinking has infected large portions of the left, and it does have consequences, not just in terms of a ramped-up politics in which you suggest that people who disagree with you want children to die, but also in terms of setting off kooks. You know, it's, it's so funny. The same people who will suggest that normal rhetoric has danger of setting off kooks. We'll get to more of that in a second. Those same people will use the most extreme rhetoric when talking about issues like climate change. All the rhetoric needs to cool down. Hey, we are not at the end of the world. We are not at the end of the United States. We are not on the verge of destroying the planet. Millions will not die. And not because of net neutrality, not because of tax cuts, and no, not because of climate change policies that are rejected in the here and now. That is not a reality. And a media that continues to push this is exacerbating it. They're making it worse. Politicians have an interest in driving a sense of crisis, specifically so they can be the people who say they're going to save you from the crisis. You remember Barack Obama in 2008 saying, this was the moment that the seas will begin to recede. What happened to that guy? I thought that was the moment when we were gonna say the seas began to recede, did they? Because they didn't, did they? And you know what happened? You know, not much. It turns out human beings are, are incredibly adaptable. And there are very few things in life that I am optimistic about. I am by nature a bit of a pessimist because pessimism just means that you will be right eventually. But there are a couple of things that I'm optimistic about, not because I'm optimistic, but because I'm realistic. I am realistic about human beings' capacity to adapt to changed circumstances. People do it regularly. We've been doing it for literally tens of thousands of years. We've gotten pretty good at it. I'm also optimistic about the ability of people to come up with new technologies, new inventions, to be entrepreneurial. You know what I am not optimistic about? The capacity of people to mobilize communally to shut down particular industries in the name of solving some sort of crisis. That very rarely works out well, and it usually has unintended consequences that are much worse than what people were talking about in the first place. So we're talking about catastrophic thinking that drives people to do crazy things and to think bad things of their political opponents, to, to not see each other as brothers and sisters, as people who are part of a common civilization, you know, people who agree on basic values, like for example, free speech and the, and the individual value of other human beings, you know, the stuff that built Western civilization. I have an entire book coming out about this next week called The Right Side of History. It, we really should all hold all of those basic principles of Western civilization in common. But one of the things that tears us apart 
is suggesting that people on the other side of the political aisle who disagree with us are purposefully malicious, that they don't care about children, they don't care about the future, that they want to destroy the planet. The media are pushing this out wholesale. So the best example of this of the day, over at the New York Times, the New York Times has an insane, ridiculous, like truly crazy, quote unquote, op-ed. It's a nine-year-old okay, named Zane Cowie and a video by a bunch of people over at the New York Times in which this nine-year-old turns the table on grown-ups. This is according to the New York Times, reading a children's book written especially for them. Goodbye, Earth. It calls out the adults who failed at addressing climate change, leaving the consequences to be dealt with by younger generations. So once again, this is demonization of people who disagree with the preferred climate change solutions pushed by the left. Here's a nine-year-old lecturing you about this, because if we have to hear about catastrophic, apocalyptic destruction of, of the earth itself, I always want to hear that from a nine-year-old, like this is some outtake from the ring. The world is big and I am small. The earth's in trouble. Hear her call. Undergree warmers are demise. We're on track for more to rise. Goodbye, New York and Miami, both cities swallowed by the sea. Whose fault is all this climate mess? You grown-ups must confess. While cities burned and temperatures soared, you upped and left the Paris Accord. You think this is a fun rhyme book? With your inaction, the earth will cook. <laughs> You've had enough of empty vows, your plastic bags, your farting cows. On a hot February day, you barbecued and went to play. But it's no time for celebration. You totally screwed my generation. If we don't protect all it's worth, prepare to say goodbye, Earth. Oh. My. God. I mean, that, that's not even a recommend. That, like, is there a fact in there? Is there a fact in there? My favorite is where they just sort of intersperse the people at the New York Times. They just intersperse cuts of cities underwater. Miami and New York will be completely underwater. What's his time frame here? Like, legitimately, what's his time? Are we not going to build any seawalls at all? There's not going to be any movement of people from these places? It'll just be like the day after tomorrow? And I love using children as the stand-ins for your opinions. Folks, do not use nine-year-olds as stand-ins for your opinions. Nine-year-olds don't know things. You wouldn't take advice from a nine-year-old on how to structure their own education. You wouldn't take advice from nine-year-olds on how often to bathe. Why would you take advice from nine-year-olds on what exactly it means for them that you embrace a different sort of solution to climate change? But this sort of catastrophic thinking, again, is not designed to spur thought. It is not designed to spur discussion. It is designed to say that if you fail to recognize the premise that we are all about to die, then you must be somebody who's okay with us being about to die. If you refuse to acknowledge that this is an emergency, it's because you don't care about the issue at all. Now, I've said with regard to the border that what Democrats should say about President Trump suggesting the border is an emergency, Democrats should say, you know what? It's a problem. And here are a couple solutions for it. And when it comes to climate change, as I've said, is it a problem? Sure. And you know what we should do? We should deregulate businesses so that they can be more entrepreneurial. We should ensure that folks are not regulated into the grounds, so that they have extra money to use to build new products. We should, we should shift toward newer and better modes of energy through profitable means. And one of the reasons that the United States has become a net carbon a, a, a carbon decreaser we've been decreasing over the past several years is because of exactly that sort of entrepreneurialism. We developed fracking, for example. We use coal less and we use fracking more, natural gas more. That's the stuff I want to rely on. But if you say that, then you're immediately deemed one of the old people in the room when this nine-year-old lectures you about how the earth will cook. 
the earth will cook. It's something from a bad sci-fi movie where suddenly a nine-year-old shows up for no reason in the middle of the scene and says to the superheroes some sort of dire prophecy about how doomsday is coming. None of this, again, is designed to make the country better or richer. None of it is designed to make the conversation better. All of it is designed to create in-groups and out-groups around issues where essentially there should be unity because if we actually agree that there's a problem, then we can start talking about solutions. But I'm not going to agree that there is a problem to the extent that we are all going to die because to me, that is you exaggerating so that you can force me to do whatever you want. It's just a variant of the old hackneyed chestnut if it just saves one child. Oh, if it just saves one child, wouldn't you do X, Y, or Z? It depends, what is the X, Y, or Z? If it would just save one child, would you ban free speech? No, no, I wouldn't. Right, and if it, so now they're doing this. If you, if we're talking about saving the earth here, the earth. Wouldn't you burn your car, just go outside and burn it? Wouldn't you burn down your own house and live in a tent if it meant preventing the end of the earth? By exaggerating the case, by creating crisis mentality, what you're doing is calling for crisis solutions. And then if people don't embrace the crisis solutions, they're bad people who deserve to be castigated as out of touch, mean, cruel, and uncaring. So obviously the big news of the day is this horrifying terrorist attack in Christchurch, New Zealand, against two mosques by a white supremacist or an anti-Muslim attack in which some 49 people were murdered. And it's a brutal, awful act of terrorism. Joining us on the line to discuss it, Sagar Jetty. He's the White House correspondent for the Daily, Call, the Daily Caller. He's also an American Muslim. Sagar, thanks so much for joining the Ben Shapiro Show. Hey, Ben. Thanks for joining. Actually, I'm not a Muslim. Just for the record. Okay. So, I'm happy so, to join. Okay. So, Sagar, you were covering a little bit earlier today this, this attack, and you were pointing out that the and you were pointing out that the media have been doing not a wonderful job of coverage on this attack. How do you think the media ought to cover stuff like this? Sure, Ben. And I think one of the most important parts is that the attacker, he was very he was very cognizant that by using a gun, he explicitly said this, that he could exploit Second Amendment, uh, a Second Amendment cleavages in the United States, which would blow up this issue in our politics, turn it into a partisan thing, and that would create a global a global controversy. And it's important, right, to not play into the, these types of things that these attackers want. This is an evil ideology. It was explicitly designed in order to bring about a culture war in the United States and in the West. And the worst possible thing that we could do is feed into that desire by playing upon those things, attacking people that he obviously wanted uh, to troll or, or to create political problems for, like Candace Owens, like the president. And instead, we should be coming together in moments like this. Well, Salgar, what have you seen in the media that's been particularly egregious? Because you know, I've, I've made it a policy that I'm not going to read from this this shooter's manifesto because that's giving him exactly what he wants. As you say, he says explicitly in the manifesto that he is looking to drive all sorts of racial conflict, particularly in the United States, that he wants people to turn on each other. I'm seeing some folks in the media immediately attempt to turn around and blame President Trump to blame mainstream conservatives for this sort of thing. I'm wondering what you're seeing out there. Yes, absolutely. I, I mean, as usual, you yourself have been a target of these things of quote unquote normalizing this type of behavior. Anybody who, who is supporting the president, the president was asked shortly before in the Oval Office whether he had any or, or whether white nationalism was on the rise or connecting to his administration in any way. All of these things are exactly the, the exact response that this shooter wanted us to undertake. He actually frequently references how the journalists will have a field day 
with many of the admissions that are in his manifesto. He was very hyper cognizant of the media environment that we have today. And what he's what he wanted to do by carrying out this disgusting act was have those types of questions leveled at mainstream conservatives to create the type of environment where conservatives would want would feel so targeted by the current mainstream that they would turn to the disgusting violence that he turned to today. Sagar, well, you've actually read the manifesto. Um, you know, again, one of the things that, that I find so astonishing about the manifesto is that some so many people on the left are claiming that this guy was some sort of conservative. He explicitly says he is not conservative in the manifesto. And that in fact, he thinks conservatives have basically handed over civilization to people he sees as the enemy. And yet the media seem again to be running with this narrative that mainline conservatism is somehow in agreement with this sort of evil act. That's absolutely right. He explicitly denounces mainline conservatism, has an entire section in which he tells conservatives that they will never win, that the only avenue is to embrace his, his repulsive, race-conscious ideology and to work towards an ethno-nationalist state, which the only thing that you can conserve is your own racial white heritage. And so it, it really is, in many ways, the complete and utter opposite of any sort of mainline conservatism. He talks explicitly about how he's a fascist. Uh, he discusses, you know, total and utter control of the state. Many, he just endorses a lot of ideas which are completely outside of the mainstream. But many journalists who just cover these issues are so desperate in order to pin it on somebody who is uh, who, to mainline conservatism today or to draw some sort of connection with the president that they don't really understand the actual explicit nature of how evil an ideology that this is. No, Sagar, one of the other things that, that people have been doing today is they have been suggesting that, for example, he was inspired by Candace Owens, who is mentioned by name here. As you mentioned, they, they say that he was inspired by me, despite the fact that my name is not only not mentioned there, but that I was the number one target of alt-right white supremacists like him in 2016. But what, what do <laughs> folks not understand about the nature of, of material like this? Because there's so many folks in the media who are covering this piece of human debris, who wrote this manifesto for 8chan, and the manifesto is filled with what people call bleep posting and trollery. What do people not understand about that form of online communication? And it's causing them to deliberately be as literal as possible in their interpretation of this stuff. Yeah, that's right. They don't understand the true nihilistic com comedic urge of blank posting, like, like what you were saying. And what that really comes down to is to try and it's, it's the trollish action of trying to lead journalists down a certain path he explicitly named Candace Owens and others in this po in this document in order to cause them political problems because he knew of any explicit association with him would have ramifications for others. And this this type of nihilistic kind of they call it black pilled uh, outrage outrage and outlook on life is something that is difficult for you know for people who are not versed in this to understand. But it, it is meant it, it is meant to to deceive well-meaning and, and you know, well-meaning journalists who are, who are trying to read this and they're looking at it uh, the way that he wanted it to be read was as a way in order to dupe others into going down the action that he does call for later in the document. Well, Sagar, thanks so much for covering this. Sagar and Jetty, White House correspondent for The Daily Caller, thanks for staying on top of this and debunking a lot of the myths being purveyed by the media in the aftermath of a, a terrorist attack about which we are all unified. White supremacy is evil. Everyone acknowledges that white supremacy is evil. Everyone of good heart. Everyone is heartbroken at what happened in Christchurch. The attempts to divide us along political lines to deny that reality is really, really difficult to, to deal with, frankly. Sagar, thanks so much for joining the show.
Hey, thanks for having me, Ben. Well, one of the one of the po folks who's been pushing this is obviously Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. She's been pushing this forward. She's been tweeting out the idea that people are are being radicalized by sort of generalized online material. She links back to a New York Times piece that supposedly links together pretty much everybody on the right with white supremacists. And that's not uncommon. We're seeing a lot of that today. And there is a, rightfully a lot of talk about radicalization on the internet. And we've seen radicalization on the internet happen for a variety of, of philosophies. Obviously, we've seen people who are radicalized in the West to join ISIS, for example. You know, they're living in the West. They have no actual formal connection with ISIS. And then they go online and they're sucked into a world where they feel important and they go and travel over, become ISIS terrorists or commit terrorism in their own homeland. We see this sort of thing happen with white supremacism. Also, the attempt to to draw people into evil ideas through these little pockets of the Internet. One of the terrible things about the Internet is the ability to fracture people off into tiny little segments and then they find common cause. Now think about it this way. Before the Internet, if there is a person in your community who believed something truly evil, were there a large number of those people? Probably not. Probably there's one guy, maybe two people. Was it enough to form a community of support, a support group that cheered on these sorts of active evil? Of course not. Now that the Internet exists, you can find people who believe in anything. There's a market for anything. There are six billion people on this planet. Not hard to find people who believe some of the most vile, terrible things imaginable. And not hard to, to find a community of like mind to cheer you on when you do this stuff. Beyond that, because the Internet reaches so many people, it means that the most popular people on the Internet reach a lot of people. A certain subset of those people are undoubtedly going to believe or do stupid things. And this is what you see in the discussion of radicalization networks you're seeing from the media today. What you'll see from the media today is that, there's these that if you listen to a mainstream right-wing figure, that that will lead you down a rabbit hole where you will inevitably become a Nazi. Well, if that's the case, then why is it that the most popular mainstream right-wing figures don't have hundreds of thousands or millions of Nazis rooting for them? Why isn't that a bigger, broader thing? The answer is because people who want to be radicalized are going to be radicalized. And not only that, people who seek out bad answers are going to seek out those bad answers anywhere that they can find them. You know, what I see happening here, and it really is depressing, is the media attempting to conflate mainstream conservatism, mainstream right-wing thinking, basic criticism of radical Islam even, with the kind of stuff that happened in Christchurch today. I'm not just talking about myself. Obviously, I've come under fire today. That's not a shock. Candace Owens has come under fire today. That's more of a shock probably to me. I think that David French has come under fire of National Review and now of Time Magazine has come under fire. I'm hard pressed to think of a person on the right who would not come under fire given these standards because for the left, they, they don't actually attempt to link together causality. They don't attempt to link together. How could this idea lead to this action. Instead, what they do is they say, okay, well, this person in a skewed and perverse way misinterpreted an idea and then misinterpreted a second idea and then ends up at the worst possible idea and then goes out and does something terrible. That's the fault of the person who said it, unless the person who originally said something was Bernie Sanders. And so what you're going to see is a vast blowback on the internet. You're going to see a vast blowback on free speech. That is the next step here. And that is deeply troubling and concerning. And again, the, this should not be a time where there's a lot of division in the West about this sort of stuff. Like, really, how many people do you know who are not disturbed by what happened in Christchurch, who don't think it was an act of tremendous evil to attack a religious site while people are praying inside, who think, oh, well, that's fine with me. How many people do you think there are who actually believe that? Not many. 
pretty much everybody is on the same page here. And yet in their determination to shut down an entire, an entire wing of thought, the conflation between white supremacy and mainline conservatism continues apace. And you're seeing it from the mainstream media. You're seeing it from people who are asking President Trump if he's somehow responsible for what happened in New Zealand without any evidence. You're seeing this happen over and over. And it's really the far left pushing it, people who hate the right. It's never anybody who is intellectually honest about this stuff. It's always people who have an agenda to push. White supremacy is evil. And if you want to talk about where it's growing fastest, it's not growing fastest in the United States. It's growing fastest in Europe. So people are trying to portray this as an American export. The New York Times has an article today about how, the New York, about how white extremism is an American-style export. But that is not correct by the numbers. By the numbers, if you want to look at where white supremacist parties are doing well, look to Europe. You want to look where there are vast marches, tens of thousands of people, not a thousand people in Charlottesville, tens of thousands of people in the streets. All you have to do is look over to Austria or Germany or Poland in the Hungary, that's where this is a real problem. That's not to say it's not a problem here, but to lump together mainstream American philosophy that calls for limited government and individual rights and seeing people as individuals, not as members of groups, to lump that in with this sort of tribal identity politics, which is what white supremacy is. It's just a form of tribal identity politics is obviously bad faith. It's obviously disgusting. And it's obviously designed to achieve a certain effect, which is, of course, why members of the media are doing it. Funny, they never did any of this after a Bernie Sanders supporter shot up a congressional baseball game. We didn't get an entire referendum on whether Bernie Sanders' language was too inflammatory and led to violence. We didn't get any of that. But we do get that when, it, when there is some sort of explanation that white supremacism is actually an extension of normal American conservatism, which it obviously and eminently is not. So... There's a major 2016 candidate who says that he wants President Trump primaried. Who is he? Well, he's the most exciting candidate of them all. Jebaru McBush. Jeb Bush says, you know what? Maybe it's time to primary President Trump. Didn't he try to run against him in 2016 and fail radically? Sure, but why not try again? I think someone should run uh, just because it, Republicans ought to be given a choice, but I think you're probably right based on the premise you had that he has a strong, loyal base and it'd be hard to beat him. It's hard to beat a sitting president. But to have a conversation about what it is to be a conservative, I think it's important. And our country needs to have competing ideologies that people, you know, that are, that are dynamic, that focus on the world we're in and the world we're moving towards rather than revert back to a nostalgic time. Okay, well, you know, the fact is that his attempt to draw a primary challenge for President Trump is sheer nonsense. That is, that is going nowhere. And the reason it's going nowhere fast is not because every Republican is in love with everything that President Trump is doing. It's because everybody acknowledges that it's very difficult to primary a sitting president. And there's a belief that anybody who attempts to primary Trump is not going to materialize into a solid general election candidate. In fact, David Byler, who's a data columnist for The Washington Post, he says, many Republicans want a primary fight, but would they actually vote for Trump's challengers? On Monday, CNN released the results of a poll of Iowa voters and found that 40% of registered Republicans hope there will be a primary challenge to President Trump for the GOP nomination in 2020. 41% do not. That may be a roughly even split, but it's not exactly a promising sign for an incumbent president. Monmouth University recently asked a national sample of Republicans and Republican-leaning voters a similar question and found that 40% said they wanted Trump 
to face a primary challenge, some 53% said that they would prefer that President Trump run unopposed. Those numbers might seem like a bad signal to Trump skeptical Republicans, but primarying Trump, kind of tough. According to the CNN poll, 82% of registered Republicans in Iowa rated Trump favorably. Only 15% rated him unfavorably. Former Ohio Governor John Kasich. Oh, no. God, no, not John Kasich. One of Trump's 2016 opponents is already rated unfavorably by 28% of Iowa Republicans, with 27% rating him favorably. Larry Hogan, who has talked about primarying Trump, was rated favorably by 4% of respondents and unfavorably by 12%. See, here's the thing. A lot of people don't like Trump or aren't in love with Trump at the very least, but for a variety of different reasons. So many conservatives think that Trump hasn't been conservative enough. They don't like his tweets. They're annoyed by his tweets. Then there are people who think that Trump hasn't been moderate enough. He hasn't reached across the other side of the aisle enough. He's been too volatile. This is the John Kasich wing of the party. There's a difference between the Ted Cruz wing of the party and the John Kasich wing of the party. And pretending that one single primary attempt against Trump is going to do any serious damage to him is, of course, foolish. And here's where it becomes seriously counterproductive. If you're a conservative and you want to see President Trump be more conservative, if you're a conservative and you want to see the Republican Party not split, if you want to see conservatism making, making the, taking the leadership position inside the Republican Party once again, then the last thing you want to do is primary Trump. Why? Because inevitably, Trump will win 80% of the primary vote. The 20% who vote for the conservative opponent will be cast out as lepers. And they will be seen as others by all the people who vote for Trump. Also, the media will jump on this to suggest that only 20% of Republicans are actually conservative. The other 80% are fine with everything that President Trump is, does, and has done. And that's not true either. A huge percentage of people who would vote for President Trump in a primary vote for him not only because they think that his record is pretty good in office, but because they think he is best positioned to win a re-election fight as opposed to a primary opponent. And yet the media will tell a lie. The media will continue to promote the narrative that if you voted in favor of Trump over a primary opponent, that's because you like Trump better than that primary opponent in every aspect, and thus conservatism is dead. This is the narrative that the left has been trying to play since Trump won the nomination and then since he won the presidency is that conservatism inside the Republican Party was dead because Trump defeated more conservative candidates and then because people who didn't vote for Trump constituted a vast minority of Republican voters in 2016. Okay, but that, that's not the reality. The reality is there are a lot of practical considerations that go into voting for a particular candidate. Trump's an incumbent. Trump has done a lot of very conservative things. The chances of a primary voter, uh, of, a, of a primary challenge that's in any way real or serious, especially from somebody like Jeb Bush, the chances are nil. Frankly, if Jeb Bush had not been on the stage in 2016, there's a better shot Trump wouldn't be president today. And Trump made mincemeat out of him. Every time Jeb went on stage, Trump pummeled him. It became a, a comic game for President Trump. Now, the last thing that, that would preserve conservatism, in my view, is a primary challenge to President Trump. Trump, for better or for worse, is going to be the flag bearer of the party come 2020, which is why he ought to do better. It's why he ought to be more circumspect in his commentary. And it's also why conservative voters ought not see him as a thought leader, but simply as an avatar of particular policy preferences. All right, coming up, we have to get into the latest in the 2020 Democratic presidential race. Beto O'Rourke was asked today to release his fundraising numbers for his first day. He did not. That does not bode well for young Beto. Also, we have some news about Beto O'Rourke. It turns out that Beto has a bit of a shady, weird history as a teenager. Some of it's relevant. Some of it isn't. We'll discuss all of it. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. Hold up. 